Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole, and I am thankful to be anywhere this year. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and of course, Twitter and Instagram, and your Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash how. How good it is, Pod. And please, please consider supporting the show as a patron. For just five bucks a month, you get the weekly newsletter to go along with this fun stuff. And uh, in fact, I've opened up the newsletters from a couple of months ago. I think there's maybe two months worth now to give you a little bit of a preview. You can click the link on the website or point your browser to patreon.com slash how good it is. I have got some chart busting trivia for ye today. Lots of artists release songs that become a hit in other countries, and that's certainly true for Connie Francis and her big 1961 hit, Where the Boys Are. It was released a month after the film of the same name came out, and the song reached the number one position in 15 different countries. But there's something special about this song, which almost certainly had a boosting effect for its sales and airplay outside the United States. What's different about Where the Boys Are? I will have that answer for ye at the end of the show. Sheryl Crow is an interesting case musically because her debut album was actually the second album she made. But let's back up just a little bit before we talk about that. Before she began her life as a professional musician, Crow was a music teacher at an elementary school in the town of Fenton, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis. Being a teacher gave her the opportunity to sing with bands on the weekends, and that gave her the chance to meet with a producer named Jay Oliver. Oliver gave her some opportunities by using her to sing advertising jingles. Her first jingle was for a department store called Famous Bar, and don't think I didn't look for that one. She also did jingles for Toyota and McDonald's. According to Crow, she made about $17,000 a year as a teacher, but in an afternoon, she made over $40,000 for singing the line, It's a Good Time for the Great Taste of McDonald's. And it was from singing the jingles that Crow got a gig as a backup singer for Michael Jackson during his tour supporting the Bad Album between 1987 and 1989. Crow herself said in an interview with InStyle magazine that she crashed the audition to get the gig, and it certainly paid off since she would often duet with him on the song I Can't Stop Loving You. She also sang backup vocals for Stevie Wonder, Jimmy Buffett, Don Henley, and a few others on their albums. Now, in 1992, Crow paired up with producer Hugh Padham to put together an album of her own. The album, titled Cheryl Crow, was going to be released in September of 1992, but she found it to be overproduced and a little too slick for her taste, and so she convinced the people at A&M Records to let her start over. However, a few pre-release copies did manage to get out on cassette tape, so superfans have heard that first album, and you can too if you do a search for Cheryl Crow Unreleased Album. Around this time, Crow joined a songwriting collective uh, that already consisted of David Bearwald, David Ricketts, Bill Bottrell, Dan Schwartz, Brian McLeod, and uh, Kevin Gilbert, whom she was dating at the time. The group met weekly on Tuesday nights, and they would have a few beers and help each other along with songs that they were working on. Before long, they began to concentrate specifically on putting together songs for Crow's second debut album. Did it. 
The musical side of All I Want to Do came first. Uh, Dan Schwartz said that in an article that he'd written for PS Audio, that one evening when he arrived, the group was already working on something, and David Bearwold shouted out to him, Dan, country disco! Schwartz recognized immediately that that's what they were doing, a kind of country-ish riff with a disco-like beat behind it. And at that time, Crow was singing something about an ex-boyfriend, which gave the song its working title of I'll Still Love You. The group laid down a musical track, and Schwartz dubbed in a bass line later that evening. Now, as work on the album moved forward, uh, Bill Bottrell had himself a little change of heart, and he started doing some additional work on the song all by himself. Once in a while, he would bring people in to play little bits here and there. Now, these group sessions took place in a studio of Bottrell's that he called Toad Hall. Toad Hall was located in this rundown area of Pasadena in a section of town that they now call the Playhouse District. He had acquired two adjacent spaces, one of which had previously been a bank, and then also in the area there was a florist, there was a local bookstore chain called Romans, there was a carpet store, and there was a used bookstore around the corner. Patrell bought something like a half a dozen area rugs to hang on the cinder block walls in the studio area to uh, keep the echoes down, and then he outfitted the rest of the studio with the usual equipment. Patrell had been in the used bookstore and he picked up some poetry books, and one of the books was a volume called The Country of Here Below, which was self-published by a poet named Wynne Cooper for a run of 500 copies. And once again, I get to say, here's where the story gets a little bit hazy. What's generally agreed upon is that the original words for the song weren't really working out, and they were in search of something else. Crow's story is that she picked up the book and spotted a poem in it called Fun, and the opening line, all I want to do is have a little fun before I die stood out for her, plus the general theme of day drinking beer conveyed a, an overall feeling of, of the whole laid-back California attitude. And it was from there that she was inspired to adapt the poem into the song. But, according to Dan Schwartz, Bottrell had had that poem in mind for the song, and he basically handed her the book open to that page, and she turned it into the song. So, maybe Betrell fed her the poem, then maybe she found it on her own. But they took their country disco song and they overlaid the poem on it nearly word for word. Now, Betrell came up with a chorus that further underlined the song's location in Los Angeles, and they cut short one of the verses. It originally read as, A happy couple enters the bar, dangerously close to one another, like this is a motel. But they clean up their act when we give them a look. One quick beer and they're out down the road and in the next state for all I care smiling like idiots we cover sports and politics and once when Billy burns his thumb and lets out a yelp the bartender looks up from his want ads so let's talk about the poem fun a little bit Wynn Cooper was a teacher at Middlebury College in Vermont so he didn't really know anything about life in Los Angeles but in fact if you read the original poem you'll see that it's, it's not really fixed in any one place Cooper was inspired to write the poem by a conversation he had had with a friend of his named Bill Ripley, who had literally said the first line of the poem. After the song became a hit, Cooper said, well, it's not specifically about him and Ripley, but rather just any couple of guys who are considering what they could have been or what they would have become had they not, if they, if they just sat there and continued to drink their lives away. But Crow's line at the opening, this is L.A., and then the reference to Sunset Boulevard in the chorus, 
carry the story over to the West Coast. And Crow herself has said that it's kind of a dark song disguised as a light pop ditty because the fact is these two characters are down and out, they're feeling apathetic and defeated, and they're just watching their lives go by. So when they begin to assemble the album that was named after their little group, the Tuesday Night Music Club, All I Want to Do wasn't even going to be on it at first. They all considered it a bit of a throwaway, but it did make it onto the album, and the next step was releasing it as a single. Again, nobody thought it was going to do anything, and the first single off the album, released in July 1993, was Run Baby Run. That song didn't chart at all in the U.S., and it barely made the charts anywhere else. The second single, What Can I Do For You, barely cracked the Hot 100 in America. But in the meantime, Crow was touring a lot of small theaters to promote the album, and she was taken on as the opening act for the Eagles reunion tour in 1994. The song got a good response at these shows, and it was enough to convince A&M Records to release it as the third single from the album, whereupon it became her big breakout hit. All I Want to Do got tons of radio airplay, and it made it to number two on the Hot 100 chart. It also topped the adult contemporary and the mainstream charts, and it was a number one song in Canada and Australia. Plus, it landed in the top 15 in most European countries, including number four in the UK, and landing it at number 13 on the Euro chart Hot 100. All I want to do is have a little fun before I die. It says the man next to me out of nowhere. It's apropos of nothing. And he says his name is William, but I'm sure it's Bill or Billy or Mac or Buddy. In 2003, British singer-songwriter Amy Stude was asked by Sheryl Crow to cut a cover of the song. And she released it in January of 2004 as her fourth single. Unfortunately, it only peaked at 21 in the UK and charted similarly elsewhere. The relatively poor showing caused Polydor Records to drop her from the label, but she managed to make a comeback a few years later. like that one. It's kind of crunchy. As for Wynn Cooper, well, he did okay in the long run. The book saw some reprint action, and of course, he gets a writing credit on the record, along with Bear Wald, Bill Betrell, Kevin Gilbert, and of course, Sheryl Crow. Overall, he gets 40% of the publishing on the song. That's, of course, before the publishing company gets his cut, but you know, still. He did, however, lose his friend Bill Ripley twice. First, when Ripley sued him unsuccessfully for a portion of the royalties, and then again when he died in 2006. now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you what was so special about Connie Francis and her song Where the Boys Are that propelled it to the top of the charts in 15 different countries. The answer is that she recorded the song in seven different languages. In addition to English, she recorded the song in German...
French? Japanese? Italian? Spanish? Neapolitan. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the Neapolitan recording for you, and I think it's because Neapolitan is so close to Italian that the search engines are just confusing the two. So I guess you're just going to have to take my word for it on that one. Curiously enough, it only made it to number five in the UK and Australia, and number four in the United States. Come on, get it together, English-speaking countries. And that is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. And now you can support the show, please, over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. If you want to get in touch with the show, of course, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page facebook.com slash how good it is pod or you can check out the show's website how good it is.com where you might find a few extra bits thanks as usual to podcast republic for featuring the show and next time around we're gonna find out how good it is when we meet up with maggie may thanks for listening i'll talk to you next time